Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is best-selling writer Brad Taylor, the author of 17 New York Times best-selling thriller novels. Brad's latest novel is The Devil's Ransom. Bookless has written about Brad's novels. Taylor continues to tell flawless stories with a stellar cast of characters. It's amazing that after so many novels, Taylor can still maintain the high-level quality and breathless action readers expect, while also getting better with each tale. Brad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, how would you describe The Devil's Ransom? Uh, it, the idea actually came from, I was doing some research on it. <clears throat> excuse me, on an uh, Israeli company called uh, uh, NSO that was doing malware for phones that could uh, penetrate any phone, iPhone, uh, Android phone, when it was zero click. And they had some guys from the NSA who were using it, uh, working, ex-NSA guys working for the UAE, and they ended up targeting some American citizens. And I thought, that's, that's kind of a neat story. But the more I did the research on it, the more I started reading about ransomware, which is a much, much bigger problem set. I mean, most people don't uh, uh, know how big a problem set it is because most people who get hit with it don't ever report it. They're too embarrassed to say anything. I mean, if you're a bank and you get hit with ransomware, you don't want anybody to know that you, you know, bring your money to my bank. I've got a bunch of Russians in here right now searching around. Uh, and it's become a huge problem. I mean, people know about anytime a life support system's hit, like Colonial Pipeline got hit, that raises our gas prices. Hospitals get hit, that makes the news. Costa Rica got hit, took the whole country down. But there's only 20% that get reported, and about 80% don't. And that started a thread for the story. And and I'm curious, given your research for the novel, which is about, um, as you said, ransomware, online privacy, et cetera, I'm curious, do you think the genie is out of the bottle um, in terms of technology? I, I can't really envision the government ever being able to keep up with the advances that happen so quickly in Silicon Valley. Do, what are your thoughts on that? I think that would, I guess the genie out of the bottle would be two different things. That mm -hmm. The pace of technological revolution, if you look at AI right now, for instance, that's certain, something you can't keep up with. I mean, one of my biggest problems I have writing these books is trying to keep up with technology because there's always something there. As far as the laws regulating it, we're just too hidebound to uh, even compete with that. I mean, I was just reading a story today that uh, you know you can get a cease and desist order from an abusive husband who has to leave the house, and it doesn't cover any of the smart uh, applications that are in the house. So the guy can still look in the cameras, he can still turn on the thermostat, he can still you know make weird noises come out of the Amazon because our laws have not kept up with it. That's interesting. Um, I'm curious if we can go back. What was your initial writing journey that led you to sit down and write uh, your very first novel? Uh, actually, it was just kind of a bucket list thing of mine. I, uh, I've always been a voracious reader my entire life. And I just always had in the back of my head one day I'd write a book. And I was at a special mission unit at Fort Bragg. I used to be in special forces. And after 9-11, I was deployed all the time. So after my command time, I came down to Charleston to teach at the military college of South Carolina, the Citadel. And I found I had just an enormous amount of time in my hands, given what I just left. And so I told my wife I was going to write a book. And I honestly thought I would sit on the bedside table and my, you know, my mom would say, that's a great book, Brad. And that'd be the end of that. <laughs> and it uh, actually ended up getting sold. And so I decided to give writing a try. And, and I'm curious, given how prolific you are, are you constantly thinking about the next Pike Logan novel that you will write? Or is it a situation where you sit down when it's time to start working on the next book and you start brainstorming right then? How does that kind of idea process work for you at this point? 
Yeah, I I would say I spend all my time dedicating 100% to the book I'm writing right now. For instance, I'm writing book 18, and that's all I'm going to think about, uh, which has caused me some consternation because uh, there are certain things that happen in the books that their linear progression of a series works perfectly well for that book. But now I've created something that exists in the universe, and I'm not sure now I have to deal with it. Uh, for instance, I wrote Daughter of War, which uh, had a, a refugee, Amina, in there, little 13-year-old refugee. She was supposed to exit chapter four, and I liked the character too much, and she ended up taking over the whole book. Uh, well, at the end of that book, it works perfectly for that book, but now Amina exists. Now what are you going to do with her in the next book? And and I'm curious about that. I mean, do you do you think ahead in terms of in terms of those kind of plot lines, um, such as you you just mentioned, Amina? Are you thinking like ahead and kind of like an overarching? Oh, I think this is where the direction of Pike will go, or is it each book you kind of come to it um, in its own? So it's, to speak? it's definitely each book in its own. I, I mm-hmm. wish I was a good enough writer. I mean, this is book seventeen we're talking about. You know, I wish I could say, yes, in book 17, I'm going to do this, and then I'll thread these <laughs> together in book 24, uh, but I don't do that. Each book gets 100%. Each book stands alone on its own. You don't have to, you know, I've read anything else in the series to pick up any of the books, and I give 100% to that book, and then I just deal with the repercussions when the next one comes along. Sure. And and I'm curious, what is your writing process when you start uh working on a new Pike Logan, you know, as you mentioned, you were, you were doing some research and thinking about ransomware and and technology. Um, Do you, do you end up writing an extensive outline? Do you just kind of have a general idea and start working? What, what, how does that work for you? Uh, I I don't do an outline per se where I, I do, you know, chapter one, chapter two, all the way to the end. I do create what I call a framework, which is basically I know the threat vector. I know the strategic arc of the story. I would have said, you know, up until I wrote No Fortune Son, I would know 100% of the time the ending of the story. Now it's about 80%. Sometimes it'll change. Um, but I know the players and I know, you know, the general scheme of maneuver. But I, at the tactical nitty gritty level, I don't know what's going to happen on each step of the way. Gotcha. Um, and, and I'm curious, given your bestseller status, as I mentioned, I mean, almost every every one of your books, if not everyone, has been a New York Times bestseller. Um, does that pressure in terms of being a bestseller, best-selling writer ever impact you when you're sitting down to write? I mean, I'm just curious, do you ever experience any self-doubts like, you know, this plot isn't really going where I want it to go? H- how do you deal with that? Yeah, I wouldn't say that the, the pre- I don't feel any pressure to get on any bestseller list. I mean, like I said, I didn't think I'd have one book published, much less 17. So every time I get a book published, period, it's mm-hmm. kind of gravy. Uh, but there is pressure. I, I, you know, my wife says I have a 12-step writing process, which step one is we're doomed. I've got nothing <laughs> to write about. And then usually by about step six, I, on every single book, I say, I don't like this book. You know, It doesn't have any heart. I don't like where it's going. I hate this book. And she gets sick of me saying that. Uh, then by step 12, I've kind of figured out where I want to go with it and how, you know, and I'm a reader first. So if I read something and don't like it, then I know that people outside are not going to like it. And so I keep working on it until I like it. Gotcha. And, and I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own novels or short stories? I honestly, the number one thing is to, is to write. I know that sounds trite, but I get Emails all the time about, uh, you know, I have a great outline for a book. How do I find an agent? Well, you need to have a book first. Uh, You know, write the best book you can possibly write. Uh, And if you're getting into this business for the money, 
it's that's a hard life to get into. I mean, you got to do it for the writing. So my biggest advice would be just to continue to write. Well, I know that you were um, in the military um, prior, as you mentioned, prior to uh, um, your your you know uh, being a best selling writer. Um, are you still kind of keeping up on you know? Uh, uh, what's going on in terms of, of, you know, our battles today in terms of the realism to bring into the books? How does that work for you? Yeah, I definitely do. I, I mean, I still do security consulting for various agencies. And I'd st- every day, every morning I wake up and the first thing I do is read feeds from news all over the world. And from everything to the latest zero-day exploit from a hacker's newsletter all the way up to uh, AI monitor in the Middle East. Here's what the Israelis are doing in, in the West Bank. I mean, I read all of that. Uh, to try to keep up with it. But it's a daunting task. It's really hard to do, especially like I mentioned before, the technology side of the house, because there's so many things that uh, just advances that go so quickly. Uh, I mean, we were just watching, you know, I live in South Carolina, so we have the, the big Murdoch trials going on right now. And we were uh, watching part of it and they had a forensics cell phone guy there and they're questioning about the, the cell phone usage. And I was amazed at all the stuff he could figure out. This is at this time, this point in time, it went from landscape mode to portrait yep. mode. At this point in time, <laughs> it moved 12 steps. I mean, he's literally saying that. It yeah. moved 12 steps. At this point in time, it was stationary. And I was like, my goodness, it does a hell of a lot more than I thought it did. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, well, I know that, you know, from looking at your website and your blog, um, and as you mentioned, you're, you're constantly, you know, reading across a wide variety of, of, of news sources um, about a wide variety of topics. And you, you know, have written on your, your website and your blog about, um, uh, 
geopolitical issues. I'm curious specifically, um, it's been kind of fascinating for me, and I, I don't have a military background, but it's been fascinating to me to, uh, and when I say fascinating, I, I feel like I have to take into account that, you know, we're talking about, you know, unfortunately, um, a, a lot of deaths, but it's been fascinating the, that, you know, uh, certainly in the US that for many years we we've thought of of Russia as being um this huge military aggressor and and the mistakes that have happened on the battlefield um uh and you know kind of a lack of training with this invasion i wonder what your your thoughts are on that i think that uh, um in hindsight you can look at the russian foray into there and see what a debacle it was but it literally came within a hair's breadth of succeeding Mm -hmm. uh, they didn't plan. I mean, you know, the old adage is that uh, privates use tactics, generals talk logistics. Right. That's basically what happened with uh, uh, the Soviet or not Soviets, the Russians. Mm -hmm. The uh, they planned for a three day war, so they didn't plan any kind of logistics or anything else. And if they'd have taken the airport outside of Kiev, they'd had a springboard to get into Kiev. That's what they wanted was a lily pad, is what we used to call it. If you could get a beachhead right there in the airfield, then right. you could flow in the forces and you'd own Kiev. And just a miracle, like the commanding general of, of uh, the Ukrainians said, they didn't count on guys with rifles wearing tracksuits. And that's literally who fought them off. And they kept them from taking that airfield. The next thing you saw was that debacle of a 40-mile-long caravan trying to drive down there, which was just a target. And it went downhill from there. Yeah. But it was not as uh, uh, preordained as anybody says now. You look back in hindsight and say, wow, that's a horrible army. If they had taken that airfield, the, the, they'd own Ukraine right now. Interesting. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Uh, I actually read murder mysteries. I just read uh, uh, John Sanford's latest. I read Robert Crace, Michael Conley, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And are you working on a new novel now? Yeah, I am. I'm working on book 18 right now. And That's believe it or great. not, it's uh, I picked Ukraine. I'm not sure why I did that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> the problem is right about current events. Or they're current. So yeah, I'm exactly. Trying to predict how that's going to go. Yeah. Well, well, um, I'm curious, uh, if, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your, your mini novels? They can go to uh, bradtaylorbooks.com, my website. And actually, there's an excerpt of all the full-length novels on there, as well as uh, uh, they can see the novellas. I've written nine novellas as well. Uh, but if they want to get a flavor of my work, they can read an excerpt of The Devil's Ransom or any of them. That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Brad Taylor, author of 17 New York Times bestselling thriller novels. His latest novel is The Devil's Ransom. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Brad, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Ahmad Khan heard the scurrying of footsteps, a scrum of people storming down the hallway outside of his office. Opening the door, he was startled to see the president of Afghanistan, Ashraf Ghani, walking rapidly past with his wife and a clutch of top advisors. Incongruously, the president was wearing plastic sandals and a thin coat. Ahmad exited the office and scurried to catch up to the group, wondering what was happening. As the president's national security advisor, he had reason to be concerned. Jalalabad had been taken by the Taliban last night, and Mazari Sharif, once the bastion of anti-Taliban resistance, had fallen without a fight the day before. Kabul was surrounded, and even as Ghani's top advisors continued to proclaim all was well, Khan knew the barbarians were at the gate. Others in the city apparently did as well, as the sky above the Arg, 
the 19th century presidential palace that had been home to the rulers of Afghanistan for generations radiated a constant thumping of rotor blades from helicopters of all nations, flying about like someone had smacked a beehive with a stick. Khan caught up to the entourage and snagged the sleeve of the man at the rear, saying, What's going on? The president has a meeting in 30 minutes about the security of the main avenues of approach into Kabul. The man turned, recognized him, and gave Khan a small shake of his head. Another man said, He'll be there. Something's just come up. We're going to meet the Americans. They're leaving their embassy and relocating to the airport. Matching the group's pace, Khan said, Shouldn't I be there as well? He nodded toward the older advisor who'd given the small shake, saying, I mean, along with the foreign minister? The foreign minister said, Not necessary. We're just coordinating. You need to prepare for the security meeting. We'll be back in plenty of time. Khan stopped and they sped away, exiting into the palace gardens. He saw two MI-17 helicopters land, and the entire group split up, boarding the aircraft. Within seconds, they were gone. The leaves and branches of the garden whipped about as if a small hurricane had come and gone. He went back to his office thinking, why is the president not dressed more formally? And why would Ghani's wife attend a meeting with the Americans? He opened the door to his office and found a man sitting in a chair in front of his desk. A small girl who appeared to be a tween was playing on the floor in front of his feet. It took a split second, but then he recognized the man, a friend Khan had known since childhood, and someone who had proven fearless over 20 years of war. Only now, for the first time in Khan's life, he saw fear in the man's eyes. Khan said, John, what are you doing here? And who's the child? Khan knew John's wife had died from cancer a few years ago, and his son was now in the fight himself, a second-generation war. John said, My son was killed in Jalalabad last night. This is my sister's child. She asked me to take her to America. She fears for her future. Taken aback, Khan said, John, I'm so sorry. They'd both lost friends in the war, but Khan had never lost a relative. He said, We'll turn this around. His loss won't be in vain. President Ghani has a plan. I'm working on it now. John stood up, and Khan saw the pressure mounting behind his eyes. He said, Ghani is gone. He's not coming back. This is done. And my sister asked me to take her daughter to America. This is not going to be a place for her in two days. Incredulous, Khan said, I just saw him. He's going to talk to the Americans. He'll be here in 30 minutes for the security discussion. John looked him in the eye and said, Ghani is fleeing. The Taliban are inside the city. We have hours, not days. We need to leave, and you have the ability to do so. What are you talking about? John closed in on him and said, I know what's happening. Even if you government sops don't want to believe it, they're here. They'll be in control by nightfall. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, 
visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.